So last time we were talking about the qualities of a disciple. We talked about three qualities. And now the third Dalai Lama mentioned six qualities. So he says sometimes six qualities are mentioned. A disciple fit to be led along the sublime path of Lamrim practice must, one, have great interest in the Dharma. That's kind of obvious, isn't it? If you don't have great interest in the Dharma, you're not going to want to be led along the path, you know, because you'd much rather be in town in a shopping mall or doing something else, okay? So, uh, you know, if we uh, want to be a good disciple or qualified disciple, and if we expect to be able to have enough good karma to call forth good spiritual teachers, then we have to develop a true deep interest in the Dharma ourselves. And that comes, of course, from hearing, thinking, and uh, meditating on the Dharma. But really thinking about it, because if we think about the Dharma and we see how true it is, then automatically we get interested in it, because we see it's it's something really important uh, to our lives. And then two, during the actual teaching, be able uh, to keep his or her mind uh, alert and well-focused. So we'll go on to number three because you didn't hear that one. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So, (laughs) that you can see you know, again, you know, to be, to really, to, to uh, get the most out of the teachings, we have to be able to keep our mind alert and focused on the teachings and not just space, that, space out, you know. Like our teacher says, uh, give some example about something and then, you know, we hear one word in the example and, oh, yes, I remember when, oh, yes, my psychology professor talked about this and this, you know, and then we're not paying attention to the Dharma teaching. Okay, so third quality, have confidence in and respect for the teacher and the teaching. So I talked about that a little bit last week, how important that is, because if you don't have confidence and respect, then you're not going to take the Dharma to heart. You're going to say, oh, who's this person? You know, they don't know much. They, they just know saying what I do, so I don't need to listen to them teach the Dharma. They got it all wrong, and, you know. And this teaching, I don't know, the teaching doesn't seem so good. So, you know, if you have that kind of attitude, then, you know, how are you going to benefit from the teaching? Whereas if you really, you know, trust the teacher and trust the Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha, you know, and then see how the Dharma is so important for your life, then it becomes much easier to stay awake and pay attention to the teachings. Okay, then four, abandon wrong attitudes towards the teaching and maintain receptive ones. Okay, so good student, if you find that, that you're having wrong attitudes towards the teaching, like, Oh, he just talked about the lower realms to scare us, you know, because there aren't really these lower realms. And, you know, he was just talking to a bunch of farmers, so he he made up this thing about the lower realms and just to scare them into practicing, but there really aren't such things. So if you catch yourself, you know, kind of 
doing that, oh, that's the wrong kind of attitude towards the teaching. Yeah, Buddha didn't make up something just you know to scare us. He wouldn't lie and make something up. And then try and um, maintain receptive ones. Okay, so um, again, an attitude that I think really appreciates uh, the opportunity to encounter the Dharma and be able to hear teachings and practice. You know, just really, really appreciating that. And I think sometimes when you do some meditation on precious human life, and, you know, the meditation where you're thinking about the rarity and difficulty of getting a precious human life, and how difficult it is to create you know, the, the, good, the ethical conduct, how difficult it is to practice generosity and patience. You look around, how many people are, you know, creating the causes for precious human life. And, and then even if they create the causes, how many people dedicate it for precious human life or do they just dedicate it for some, you know, I want to be happy in my next rebirth. Yeah. So, so, you know, if you really um, uh, think about the preciousness of having not only the, the, your, your human body and mind and a healthy one, but also having a mind that's interested in the Dharma. You know, really appreciate that and respect that within yourself. Because you know? if we don't have a mind that's interested in the Dharma, then there's no way we're going to make any effort to, to listen to teachings or practice we don't make an effort to listen and practice then we don't create any good karma then our next rebirth is a mess then forget liberation and enlightenment you know so so if we really kind of value the opportunity now and we keep reminding ourselves of that then you know we take advantage of it okay another um, condition of a, of a qualified student is to maintain conditions conducive to learning. Okay, so this is not only your your mental state. You want to create a mental state that is conducive to learning, but this what we were just talking about before, um, some kind of sensory strain. Yeah, because that's a condition to a good condition for learning the Dharma. Because if you don't have a lot of sensory strength, then your mind's wandering off to all sorts of other things in teaching. Or you're not even going to get to the teaching because you're going to go bowling or golfing or doing something else and shopping instead. Yeah. And um, so I think if, you know, if you're really serious about Dharma practice, you're going to want to make your life as simple as possible and not get involved in having you know, a huge social, social life where, you know, you're going and seeing, keeping all these friendships and talking to all these people, making sure everything's okay and going to the movies and watching the latest TV programs so that you have something to talk to your friends about and keeping track of the sports heroes and the movie stars and, you know, because all of that stuff, that may be good for for keeping worldly friends but that stuff isn't going to give you any mental space for, for your dharma practice yeah it's just filling your mind with a lot of useless stuff basically so if you're serious about the dharma then you want to you know simplify your lives and your lifestyle and, and like really make wise decisions about what you're going to spend your time doing and that's that's why we have the environment that we do at the abbey you know, because if you're living in the city, you know, it's like, oh, 
I feel like eating peanut brittle. Okay, let's get the condo store and buy peanut brittle, you know. Or I feel like eating, you know, cupcakes. Okay, let's go to the store and buy cupcakes. Um, you know, one of the things about living here is you don't follow all those things out. Yeah, so you watch the thought come and you watch it go and you realize you live very well without peanut brittle and cupcakes. And uh, you save all that money from from gas. You don't pollute the, the atmosphere by driving unnecessarily. And you save so much time. Yeah. So so just the structure and how you live your, your daily life and, and the parameters you set for yourself about, you know, what you put your attention on uh, can either become very conducive for your Dharma practice or it can become a big hindrance. Yeah. And so, you know, when you're in the city, and yes, we always hear before, you know, the, the week-long retreats or the three-month retreats, I don't have time. Yeah, you know that one? You know, oh, I'd love to come to that retreat. It sounds so good, but I don't have time. Well, why don't you have time? What are you doing? Well, I'm just so busy. Well, what are you doing? Yeah. Make a little chart of how you're spending each 10-minute block of your time, you know, and write it all down every 10 minutes, what you're spending your, those 10 minutes doing, and then you'll see what you're doing that makes you too busy to do retreat, or too busy to do your practice, or too busy to go to teachings, or whatever, and then see what's important to you. Yeah? So I, I think creating those conducive circumstances um, for ourselves is, is quite important. Yeah. And I think this, this is a, a, a real plus in monastic life is you have the support of a community that's set up for the purpose of Dharma practice. So it becomes so much easier to practice because that's the purpose of where you're living and what you're doing. Whereas, you know, you're living in the city, you know, what's the, per- what's the city life set out, the set out for? Distraction, isn't it? We're all supposed to be big consumers. And we're all supposed to have a life and be, you know, incredibly busy running around doing nothing. Yeah, but if you're not incredibly busy and if you have five minutes, then something's wrong with you nowadays. Yeah? So... Yeah, maintaining conditions conducive to learning, I think, is, is really quite important you know, for us. And then six is eliminating any, any unconducive conditions. Okay? And so, again, this is the, the nice thing about when you live in a community is the community is set up to do that. So it becomes just much easier because you do what everybody else does. You know? So instead of you living on your own, you know, it's like, the alarm rings and it's like oh let's go back to sleep yeah and nobody knows nobody cares if you're living in a community the alarm rings and it's like well everybody's getting up for practice so I get up for practice you know everybody's going in the meditation hall so I go in the meditation hall everybody's prostrating so I prostrate so it becomes very very easy yeah because the whole the whole thing is set up that way Okay, then the third Dalai Lama continues. If you give a discourse on the Lama, try to maintain the qualities of the teacher described above 
and if you listen to a discourse, cultivate the above qualities of an ideal disciple within yourself. Okay? So we're not ideal disciples. We, we are in the process of training and cultivating ourselves and trying to become more and more and more qualified disciples and qualified teachers. Okay. While training in the Lamrim under the guidance of a fully qualified spiritual master, try to live in a quiet place pleasing to the mind. Okay? Obvious reasons. Um, arrange an altar having images of your teachers, the Buddha, a stupa, and a scripture, as well as fresh, pure offerings. In front of your altar, prepare a comfortable meditation seat and either four or six times a day sit there in the seven-point meditation posture perform the Lam Rim preliminary rite and meditate as instructed. Okay. So this is actually uh, quite a, uh, a big chunk of, of things here and our life here at the Abbey is very much uh, based on doing exactly this. Because you know, if you look, we have the meditation hall. Yeah, quiet place pleasing to the mind. There's an altar. There's images of our teachers. Okay. Then there's uh, an image of the Buddha representing the qualities of the Buddha's mind. Yeah, there's a scripture. We have many scriptures there uh, representing the speech. I mean, the figure, I'm sorry, the, the statue of the Buddha represents the Buddha's body. The scriptures represent the Buddha's speech. We have a stupa representing the Buddha's mind, yeah, and then um, and then uh, then we have comfortable meditation cushions, yeah, and you just are aware that you're never going to find perfectly 100% comfortable <laughs> meditation cushion because you don't have a body that is ever going to be perfectly 100% comfortable, okay. Um, and then you have uh, fresh, pure offerings. When it talks about pure and fresh offerings, you know, there's something to say here. Um, like when we get flowers, we should offer the flowers right away. We don't keep the flowers somewhere around and then offer them later because then they're already half wilted. Yeah. So when we get flowers, we offer them right away. Um, Pure offerings. We want to make sure that we get our offerings uh, through right livelihood. Yeah. Uh, as a layperson, that means not doing a job that uh, involves harming other living beings or cheating or deceiving them or lying or something. And when you're living the kind of lifestyle we live here at the Abbey, then uh, to be able to procure your requisites without hinting at other people, you know, gee, what you gave me last time was so nice, hint, 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 give me another one. Uh, without flattering people, oh, you're so nice, you're one of our best volunteers, you know, kind of buttering them up so they give you something. Without um, uh, giving a small gift in order to get a big one, Oh, here's this nice thing. Oh, now you owe me something. Yeah. Uh, without coercing people, putting people in a situation where they can't say no. Yeah. And uh, and then without being a hypocrite. 
So, you know, when when one of your sponsors comes around and all of a sudden you look like such a good Dharma practitioner, and when your sponsor's not there, you know, you're sleeping and, you know, lying around and stuff like that. Okay, so to, to really be worthy of the offerings and to procure them in a proper manner. Okay. Um, and then it says either four or six times a day, so when you're doing retreat, you know, uh, you can do either four sessions a day or six sessions a day. We're doing six and then making one of those sessions a study period. Um, in your regular daily practice, you want to try and do morning and evening. Okay, or morning or afternoon. Some people are are not evening meditators, so then, you know, do your, your second session sometime in the afternoon. Uh, and then sit in the seven-point meditation posture. Okay, so that's the posture by the chana. So if you can put your legs in the full vajra position, great. If you can't, then half vajra. If you can't, then just taurus position. If you can't, then regular cross legs. If you can't do that, then sit in the chair with your feet flat on the floor. Okay, then your back straight. Then your hands in your lap, the right on the left. The thumbs are touching to form a triangle. Uh, your head upright or just maybe incline your tuck your chin just a tinge you want to make sure that your head doesn't start to droop and that your back doesn't slump because then you're going to get a lot of drowsiness in your meditation okay so make sure that, that your head is erect um, leave your eyes a little bit open but they're, they're downward so you're not really looking at something and that also will prevent you from falling asleep when you're meditating Okay. Um, uh, keep your mouth closed unless you have bad allergies or a cold. And then your tongue is on the upper palate. I don't know about anybody else, but there's no place else for my tongue to go. <laughs> Maybe some people have different mouths or something and their tongue can wander around in it. But when my mouth's closed, my tongue is there on the palate. <laughs> you know? Um, <laughs> Okay, and then your shoulders level and, uh, yeah, so that you're sitting in a proper position. And that helps the circulation of the, uh, of the winds in the body. And it can help your meditation a lot. You know, the position that you sit in will influence the quality of your meditation. Okay. Um, perform the long run preliminary rites. So this is... There's shorter versions and longer versions. Yeah. Uh, in one way, like the Lama Chippa Puja that we do twice a month, that's a long version of it, of the Lama preliminary rites. There's another puja called Georgia, which means like preliminary, yeah, preliminary rites. Um, but the, ba- the basic format is what I was describing, you know, where you visualize the objects of refuge, you take refuge, Develop bodhicitta, meditate on the four immeasurables, okay? That the refuge objects dissolve into you, then you visualize whatever your merit field is at that time. If you're using the big one, the Lama Sankapa, with but like the Tonka in the meditation hall, or now during Chenresi retreat, your merit field is Chenresi. You know, you can think of Chenresi surrounded by all the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas. And then you do the seven limb prayers. You can either do a short version or a long version. I won't go into all the details now, but that's the prayer 
where you have prostration and offering, uh, confessing our negativities, rejoicing in the virtues of others, requesting our teacher to teach, uh, requesting the, the Buddha and our teacher to stay until the end of samsara and then dedication. Then do a mandala offering, either a long one or a short one. Okay. Make some kind of request prayer so that we, we request the blessings and inspiration from, um, you know, the merit field. And then after that, do the Lamrim uh, meditation. So in the Lamrim CDs that, uh, that I made, then there's the meditation, the guided meditation on the Buddha. So it has all these different practices in it. Yeah. And, uh, you know, if you want to do a glance meditation right before you do your Lamin analytical meditation on your subject, then that's really good. Using one of the, the prayers like the foundation of all good qualities or three principles of the path, or, you know, one of those kind of prayers. Um, yeah, and so that, that makes the mind quite ripe for uh, meditating. Now, some people like to do these preliminary rites and take a long time doing them, and other people like doing the prayers very quickly. It's completely up to you. And uh, one thing that I think is quite nice in the Tibetan system is when you're doing the chanting in Tibetan, is the fast and slow ways of doing every prayer. You know? And so even though in English we may not have so many different versions right now, you know, you can just if you tie your mind to the meaning of the prayers, then you can read them more quickly and you know call up the feeling very quickly. Or you can read a little bit and then stop and meditate on that section of the prayer and generate that feeling and then go on to the next part. So there's different ways of doing that. Okay. We're moving along here. So now the first meditation subject is how to rely upon a spiritual mentor. Now, here's where you see that the Lam Rim was written for people who were already Buddhists. Okay? Because people who, you know, like most of us, we weren't born Buddhists. And so going out and trying to, you know, do, do this meditation and find a spiritual teacher is not what we need to do at the very beginning. And it can actually lead to a lot of complications, yeah, because we don't understand the, the Dharma well enough. So when I made the Laman uh, CDs, I put this meditation at the end. Because if you have a good knowledge of the general Laman and the importance of the Dharma, then automatically you understand the importance of having a teacher and the importance of creating a good relationship with your teacher. Okay? But if you don't have any understanding of the Dharma, then this whole meditation doesn't make any sense at all. And it sounds like a lot of idol worship. And it uh, can really get people, make them kind of they don't they they don't think properly, yeah. After that, so it's it's really important to to understand this meditation well. The purpose of it, okay, how to rely on a spiritual mentor, is, you know, we, we need teachers for even the most mundane activity that we do in our life. You know, somebody taught us how to tie our shoes. 
somebody teaches us how to drive they teach us how to type we need teachers for everything so and these are just mundane things that you know aren't that difficult so if we need teachers for that then for a spiritual practice which is you know so much more complex you know and working with our mind which is so much more complicated then clearly we need you know a teacher who knows what they're talking about to lead us along the stages of the spiritual path and I say this because a lot of people have the idea of you know well I'll just invent my own path you know it's like well I like this out of this religion and that out of that religion and you you know you put it all together and it may be a system of rituals that make you feel good but that's not necessarily going to be a path to practice that whereby you're going to gain spiritual realizations. Okay, you're getting what I'm what I'm saying. I mean, you might love going to church and singing on Sunday and the feeling how good it feels to to be with other people and singing those prayers that you chanted when you were a kid. And then you like the, you know, the ritual and somewhere else, and you like the philosophy of this other religion, and, but you like this other philosophical point and practice point from another religion, and so you kind of mix them all together. Lama Yeshi used to call that making soup. Okay, a little bit of this, a little bit of that, and you you wind up with nothing that is a systematic approach to practice. Okay, so. Um, how did I get on that? I'm talking about a teacher. Yeah? But a teacher keeps you anchored, you know, and teaches you one path. So you don't kind of go all over making up your own path and putting it all, all together. Because if you think about it, you know, we've been in cyclic existence since beginningless time. We've been trying to guide ourselves to ultimate bliss since beginningless time. Where have we gotten ourselves? we're still in samsara okay so maybe it's a good idea to try doing something new so instead of trying to guide ourselves to ultimate bliss which we've been doing since beginning last time you know let's find a qualified teacher and see if that teacher you know can teach us something that's useful that our ego can't teach us and so we're beginning to challenge ego's hegemony here because ego says I know what's best for me. Don't tell me what to do. I'm a grown-up, and I'm going to make my own decisions. Thank you very much, and stop pushing me, and stop pressuring me, and I don't like this. I'm not going to do it. See if you can make me. (laughs) Okay, that's just called resistance. (laughs) And we all have it, don't we? We all want to be our own guru. My inner guru tells me to sleep until 8 o'clock in the morning. Yeah. (laughs) My inner guru tells me that I need to relax by watching television. My inner guru, you know, what kind of inner guru are we having here? Okay. (laughs) So, so if we are... uh, you know we have to look for somebody who's qualified and then when we find a qualified teacher it's to our benefit to keep a good relationship with that teacher you know because any you know and I think this is important in life in general any relationship we have 
it is our if it's a valuable relationship it's our responsibility to put the energy into keeping it up you know and if it's not a valuable relationship there's nothing wrong with you know people grow apart but especially with our spiritual teacher it's our responsibility to make that a close relationship as close as we want it to be okay and so it's not when I was in Singapore somebody was telling me you know they started going to this new Dharma center and the teacher would call him up and say I haven't seen you in a while come let's practice together you know and I know my teachers never did that my teacher said here's the Dharma it's up to you You, if there's something that's meaningful to you you put out energy and it's not something meaningful to you that's okay it's completely up to you yeah and uh, but if the Dharma is important to us and having a guide is important to us then having a good relationship with the guide is important you know because if our mind starts going on a lot of trips about the person who is guiding us to enlightenment then we're going to get all tangled up in those trips and we're going to start doubting the practices that we've been doing and you know it, it gets very very confusing yeah. and so that's why we want to try and keep a good relationship with that person I'll get into it later because sometimes it happens that uh, you know we follow somebody for a while and then some qualities become apparent that we didn't know about before and we feel like you know it's not so good for me to study with this person right now but if you just ever decide to do that still in your mind you maintain an attitude of thankfulness and gratitude for how they did help you and then you seek out new teachers that can help you more okay but the the thing is to to uh try to not let your mind get in this really horrible negative state of just you know why are they telling me to do this and they're just telling me you know they're teaching about this because they're trying to control me and they're after making me work too hard and they're doing this and they're doing that and what what we're doing there is you know when our mind gets in that state can we practice any dharma no it's just our usual old mind isn't it and what's usually happening is just our usual old stuff that we project on other people we're just projecting on our teacher yeah so this whole psychological thing about transference yeah we do it we just project it all on the teacher you know my teacher's going to be the mom and dad I never had but they're ignoring me like my mother and father used to ignore me and, you know and so <laughs> We, you know, we start imputing all these things and, and then we just get so tangled up yeah whereas if from the beginning we say to ourselves you know I really want to keep a good relationship with my teacher so that means I have to learn you know how to see my teacher's good qualities and appreciate what they're doing for me and keep my mind focused on that yeah. then you might say well but you know don't they have negative qualities and shouldn't I see their negative qualities well before you select them as as your teacher you know that's the time to see it 
but it's kind of like it's like you know when you fall in love with somebody that person has lots of negative qualities do you see them? no do you, do you force yourself to see them? no because you want to remain in like everlasting you know bliss with this person they're so wonderful they don't have any faults yeah and we really believe that and yet that's all just our make-believe and then of course you know we start picking faults and then we start picking so many faults that later on we go back and we go well how the most because I ever fell in love with them to start with there's nothing there to love you know and it's, that's just all projection of I mean just our whole mind too many opinions yeah so here what we're trying to do with a spiritual teacher is trying to create a really healthy relationship you know by understanding what the relationship is about understanding what our responsibility is not projecting a lot of emotional psychological expectations on that person and then not you know when we respond in our own our own personal stereotypical ways to when our buttons get pushed to take that as an opportunity to learn instead of criticizing our teacher you know about it and the thing is if we can keep a good relationship with our teacher who is somebody with a lot of compassion who's trying to guide us to enlightenment if we can you know with a person who actually has good will towards us if we can at least overcome all these negative projections that we put on them then that's a very good beginning point for working with other sentient beings isn't it yeah because it's going to be real hard to develop love and compassion for other sentient beings if if all we do is complain about our spiritual man, mentor. Yeah, do you see what I what I'm getting at? So, this whole thing about keeping the good relationship is not for the benefit of our teacher; it's for our benefit. Yeah, it's because it becomes easier for us to practice if we maintain a positive attitude in our own mind and it becomes more difficult for us to practice if we just let our mind go crazy with all of its usual stories and stuff okay so how do we do this how do we create you know uh, a good attitude towards our teacher teacher so the third Dalai Lama says the best way to rely on a spiritual mentor is to practice analytical meditation upon his or her excellent qualities and his or her beneficial function in your spiritual life okay so you want to see their qualities no the the knowledges your teacher has what an excellent example they are you know how they keep ethical discipline and you know how well they know the teachings and how patient they are and things like that and so see their qualities and then you also want to see that they function in your life in a very special way that no other person on this planet functions in that way you know Um, it's like you know it's like your mother and your father you only get one of them yeah because they have special functions and uh and a spiritual teacher thank goodness we can have more than one but they but they play a very very special function in our life okay they they aren't our friends they aren't our tax advisors they aren't our you know our fashion advisors they aren't 
Yeah, financial advisors. They are, their, their purpose is to lead us to enlightenment. Well, what kind of incredible beneficial purpose is that? And, you know, who else can you find who fulfills that function in your life? You know, who are you going to turn to to, to lead yourself to, to, to be led to enlightenment? You know, are you going to turn to the U.S. Senate to lead you to enlightenment? You know, are you going to turn to the State Department to lead you to enlightenment? You know, who, who are, you going to, are you going to turn to your mother and father? Can they lead you to enlightenment? Yeah, can your best friend lead you to enlightenment? Can your business colleagues lead you to enlightenment? Yeah? So when we start thinking like this, it's like, who in the world can lead me to enlightenment? Well, most of the people that I'm so attached to, you know, children, parents, whoever, siblings, you know, sometimes they're worse off than we are, aren't they? Yeah? So they can't lead me to enlightenment. Who's going to lead me to enlightenment? Yeah. Even I can't get it to enlightenment. Who's going to teach me something about wisdom, about concentration, about bodhicitta, about ethical conduct? Yeah. And so when we think about that, then we, we see this incredible function that our teachers play in our lives and we really appreciate them for it. Okay. So when we do this kind of analytical meditation on their qualities and on the function they play in our life, yeah, it's really very, very powerful. And especially when you train your mind to, to see things as part of your training. So when your teacher asks you to do something, instead of going, oh, you know, why did they pick me? And I said, I don't want to do this. And I'm not talented. I don't have qualities. And I don't have time. Say, it's, you know, okay, well, my teacher saw some potential here. And they thought that it might be good for me to develop some ability in this area. And my training is to do this. Yeah? And um, I remember, do you remember when Reverend Hario was here? Mm-hmm. And he gave quite a nice talk. I remember we were sitting around at the table. And he was saying that how he practiced with his teacher, you know, because his, she would ask the, them to do all sorts of incredible things is that he would take it as part of his own training for developing his own qualities. You know? And he realized that the way to do the job wasn't just to do it quickly and to get it done, but what was more important was how he was doing it. You know, how do you do everything you do in your life? So you're added to, I'm just going to do this quickly and mindlessly and get it done and go on to the next thing? Or is, you know my job to, to try and be aware and you know this whole thing of sensory restraint and cultivating the bodhicitta attitude while I'm doing it and being aware of my mind and you know and that when your teacher gives you a job that becomes like your practice because there's so much to practice within doing that okay do you remember that when we came and talked about that okay so it's um, it, when, when you do that when you have that kind of attitude then it changes your take and how you relate to, to different things. Yeah. So, you know, instead of going like, uh, okay, like guess your tech truck wants me to work on this book on emptiness that he's doing, you know. I could go, I'm totally unqualified and how can I do this? And it's too difficult. And, uh, you know, and I'm going to make so many mistakes and then people are going to, 
he's going to be mad because I'm putting mistakes into his pure teaching and people then people will know that I'm an idiot of because I'm supposed to edit a good book and I'm going to edit a horrible book and you know and, and you know that kind of thing that kind of way of reacting just, that's just our normal usual junk isn't it you know but then if you say okay what an incredible opportunity okay I'm totally unqualified to do this but what an opportunity how much I will learn by doing this and I might even develop some skills as well as learning the Dharma yeah and then this whole thing of you know here's somebody who's trying to benefit all sentient beings and you know what you're saying I don't know what my motivation is sometimes you know I have good motivation bad motivation well if if here's somebody who's trying to benefit sentient beings and they need help doing something maybe if I help them do it I'm doing something beneficial <laughs> yeah so so then it gives you some kind of inspiration to you know to try and do that of course if your teacher gives you something to do that you like really totally you're going to make a total mess out of you know and you really can't do it or you feel unsuitable or you're un- really you know then you go and you explain you know I feel really I really don't think that I'm the best person to do this and this is why and I you know I remember one time uh, oh, I had just been in Italy for 21 months and I was completely frazzled and then Lama asked me to uh, stay in France and be this, the program director the spiritual coordinator there and I just knew that my mental state wouldn't allow it you know because I was just like Aah! you know and so I had to say Lama I really wish I could but I can't you know he said okay dear Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah so you communicate with your teachers it's fine it's not a dictatorial relationship but you know to, but to try or if your teacher suggests for you to do a certain practice instead of like oh I don't have time to do that practice or I don't like that practice or you know, like, oh hmm, maybe they see something why this practice would be good for me to do okay so I think we will stop here today and then the next week I'll start doing more from the text. I just kind of was talking extemporaneously now. Any questions about it? I have some questions. Yeah. Because um, you know, me and Nancy were talking about something earlier this week that was where we got into a little like the old time. And then um, she said something that still just sticks on my mind. She said, I don't have a choice. And as soon as she said, the first thing was, I do have a choice. And you know, as soon as she said that, it's just a way of saying that you don't have a choice because you're the student. In my mind, I have to be very clear about what my motivation is and I'm constantly watching it. And I you always have a choice in everything that you do. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And if you choose to do something, then you choose to do it. But for me, if I'm if I'm so, what do you say, right? What do you say? Digging in your heels. Yeah. Then I'm not going to do it because it's going to create, I'm going to harm everybody and doing it. I'm going to be miserable and it's going to create. So in those instances, um, from my side, it seems like you want to say, no, I can't do it. That's, you know, if you're choosing something, um, 
Like if I don't understand the motivation behind doing it, and that happens a lot. Sometimes I don't understand. I think, why is she doing that? I can't ever think why she wants to do that. My reason for not wanting to do it, though, is is not the thing that you're looking at. Like mm-hmm. you're doing something, and you're, and I think, well, I'm not going to be part of doing that. But my reason for doing it is based on some rational basis. But I don't think it's it's the side you're coming from, and I think maybe I should do it, maybe not. I don't know. Yeah. Well, in those kinds of things, it's it's very good to just ask your teacher. You know, because that that way you'll learn. Because everybody sees things from a different perspective. Yeah, and so you know, anybody, whether it's your teacher or not, may say something to you, and you may not understand where they where are they coming from. Why do they think that is important? Mm-hmm. Why in the world would they do it that way? And then you can ask, and then they can explain, and then you might go, Oh, I never thought of that. And and then you might say, oh, well, that makes perfect sense why to do it. Or you might say, well, they're concerned about this one thing here, and that's why they're doing it. To me, that's not a big concern. I'm more concerned about this thing over here. And so I would do it differently because I think that thing is more urgent than this thing. Mm -hmm. And so you can talk and you can discuss. But I think just that process can open your mind up to there's more ways than to do things than my way. Yeah, and that people have different reasons for doing things in different ways. And if you, you know, if you ask them, you might learn something about how they're thinking that can be quite valuable to you. Yeah, that's the, I think that's, that's the main thing is trying to figure out where you're coming from and you're coming from. And that's what I'm trying yeah. to do And so I think it's good to ask people, you know, explain to me why. And that when people ask us why, we shouldn't get defensive. Like, why don't I have to explain to you every little thing? But it's like, you know, when you explain, this is is a time to teach, you know. And it's also a time to check out, well, why do I do things this way? And maybe somebody else has a better way to do it, and I need to listen to them. In the Catholic orders, they... they, uh, they have this thing, you know, the decisions are made by, by the seniors, but in the discussion time, everybody, um, uh, you know, talks about it. And I think St. Benedict or something, you know, somebody said kind of, sometimes the best solutions come from the people who are new. Yeah? And so that's why when it's a discussion, everybody puts their, their ideas in. Yeah. But then the people who have more experience are the ones who kind of value the different weights of the different ideas. Yeah? And so sometimes you may be doing something and somebody may say, Why are you doing that? And then <laughs> and then it's yeah. a chance for you to explain to somebody else your way of thinking. And then they can broaden their mind to realize too that their way of doing it isn't the only way of doing it. Does that make any sense? Yeah, it, it has it has some um it makes sense, you know, theoretically, but in the moment I've had the experience where it feels like there it feels like there isn't a choice. Or it feels like there's no um it's not a dialogue or, or trying to come mm-hmm. to 
Um, what you're looking at from this point and I'm looking at from this point, how can we come together on this? It's more like you look this way. And you don't have any choice. And so I, I have I have a hard time. Maybe it's, it's I maybe I'm putting that on it. Mm-hmm. But I don't know. Yeah. And also sometimes we have to look inside because we tend to be very independent minded and it's like I want my choice on everything. You know? And uh and so sometimes we, we hang on, to, to, if we give up our choice, we feel like we're giving up our freedom. Or sometimes if we give up understanding things, we feel like we're giving up our freedom. I remember when I took, the first time I took highest class Tantra initiation, it was all in Tibetan. They gave us the sadness in Tibetan. I, my Tibetan was really lousy. I, could, I recited the whole thing, hardly understood anything for I don't know however long it was until they finally translated it into English. Then I didn't have teachings on how to do the practice for, I don't know, maybe a year and a half or two years. So I'm sitting here, you know, first doing it in a pride, reading this Tibetan I didn't understand, then English, I still didn't even understand it until I got teachings on it, you know. But I did it because I, you know, had made a promise to do it. And it was very good for my mind to to do something that it didn't completely understand. You know, because sometimes it's like, I want to understand everything. And it's like, well, no, sometimes I can't understand everything. And when I would do my training in, in uh, Taiwan, you know, I couldn't, there's some things that I couldn't figure out for the life of me why they did things that way. But it was very good training for me sometimes just to be quiet and, and observe and watch. And I thought, okay, this is an interesting way to do it. Um, let's see what I can learn from it. Yeah. So it's a thing to like, like look also inside. And I think this is for all of us because we all like to feel like we're in charge, don't we? We all like to feel, you know, I understand this. I'm making a choice. I know what's going on here. You know, do we? Do we have any clue what's going on here? Yeah. But it, it is a good opportunity to dialogue. So don't don't sit there and like push yourself down about the whole thing. Yeah. But bring it up and and talk about it. I remember. What was it? Oh, I remember when she was staying here. Um. Sometimes, like, we would have some leftover soup, and then she would heat up this big pot of soup, and of course we would only have a little bit, and then it would cool again, and then heat it up again, you know, the next day. And I said, please don't do that, you know, please don't heat things over and over again. And, um, and she just, she didn't like, like me saying that. <laughs> and, and, I, and I said it a few times. And then she said, why are you telling me that? And I said, because whenever you heat it, more bacteria grow in it. And so it's, it, it's more unhealthy, and every time you heat it, more of the vitamins get decimated, so the food becomes more and more unhealthy every time you heat it up. She said, oh, that's a good reason. <laughs> yeah? And so because she asked, and she understood why I said that, and then... You know, it stopped being a, a problem for her because she'd never thought about that before. Mm-hmm. 